Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? Well, when we think about the language of putting a yoke on animals, we kind of have seen this, probably not as common today as in the past, but normally you think of yoking two animals together with a desire of getting both those animals to work as a team, to do what you need to be done. You can think of the yoke of the animals. Sometimes there's one yoke placed upon one animal with a desire to control the movements and where the animal's going. We think of putting the yoke on an individual. This is not always something that's so positive. We would put this in our day and age along the lines of being handcuffed, being captured, uh, being led off as prisoners of war. And so when you go through Hosea, it's important to understand this language of yoking in Israel, saying they don't have a king, and the Lord reminding them uh, they most certainly do have a king. And they need to recognize that this king is doing something for them as a great redeemer. And so when we think about this, this yoking, that we can think, well, maybe it's a nation that has tried to overpower a stronger nation. Uh, maybe it's a nation that has sinned in, in, in some way and, and another nation's coming against them. Maybe it's unjust. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we we, we uh, go through the text and we can find exactly what the Lord intends to do. But you can notice as we look at this text how it sort of adds more details and, and uh, makes references back to the first part as you go to the last part of chapter 10. And so when we look at this, we can say, well, when you think about Israel and you think about the exhortation we read from Christ, of an exhortation for us to put on the yoke of Christ, we can ask ourselves, how, how can that be a glorious thing to put on the yoke of Christ? Because if yoking is controlling, and if yoking is leading someone as a prisoner of war, why would Christ use this language? How, how is this remotely encouraging, to say the least. So we'll look at verses 1 through 8 and see the no king consequence, where Israel says, we don't have a king. And then the second part of this, where we have the king's yoke, verses 9 through 15, where you find clearly Israel does have a king. And so let's begin then. We look at verses 1 through 8. We notice verse 1 it's almost like in chapter 9 where it starts with the high point of finding Israel in this romantic um, history of what's going on. So we think of Israel being that luxury and vine, right? It yields its fruits. It's beautiful. You're proud of it. You hear this language that the more its fruits increase, the more altars it builds. And, and you think, wow, right up here we have a people that experience the blessing of God. They build more altars in the praise of God, right? I mean, if you read the start of this, you might think, wow, what a great history. Well, let's think about what's going on with this language. The luxuriant vine that increases in the altars. We think about a luxuriant vine. We think back to Genesis 49, verse 11, where 
you have this reference, or at least it seems to be an echo. It uses different language in the Hebrew, but the concept's there. Where you have the choice vine, uh, the, uh, the one from the tribe of Judah, the young cub that rises up, riding in on a donkey until you know, the glory or tribute comes to him. Zechariah picking up on this theme. But one of the things that's noted in Genesis 49.11 is you're going to take this donkey that the king is going to ride upon, you tie it to the choice vine, which is absolutely absurd if you're a farmer. Because if, if this is your choice vine, you protect it, right? You, you don't put some dumb animal to it that's just going to gnaw on it, eat it, and destroy it, potentially. But the point of the kingdom in Genesis 49 is it's so rich, so plentiful, that there's multiple choice vines. So when Hosea 10 verse 1 calls us to our attention, we should think of that messianic prophecy of Judah, the Messiah, coming in this line, establishing a kingdom. And the Lord saying, here is my people, this luxurious and glorious vine, the choice one. We can see this even in Hosea 6 where he says, like Adam, right? They've gone astray. But he still compares them to sort of this Edenic or, or uh, glorious garden-like situation in Eden. You go on and then you think in Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I called my son that Christ takes upon himself. So you're seeing this language of Adam, last Adam, going on here in Hosea choice vine thinking of these themes going on and it sort of makes you reminisce and say wow what a glorious thing God's people become like this this new Adam going into a glorious land everything's wonderful everything's beautiful and then they build more altars what a wonderful way to express their love for God until you read the next line and then you recognize exactly what the Lord is recalling. They were like the luxuriant vine, like that messianic prophecy in Genesis 49. And the altars are not altars built into the Lord, but they're improving their pillars. So now we understand what's going on. Their vine increases by the hand of God, and they thank Baal and Asherah. The pagan gods they were supposed to exterminate from the Holy Land. And they massage these altars, they build these altars, and they, they polish the pillars to the great uh, goddess Asherah. Israel is not tuned in to the Lord. They don't have a, a proper understanding of where the Messiah comes from. So verse 1 of chapter 10 is very important. Because you think, high, awesome, incredible, redemptive mercy of God, and look at what they've done. And it tells us our propensity, where we are prone to go. Look at what my hands have done. Look at who I am. Look at my abilities. I'm going to worship these gods. And the Lord's saying, but I'm your God. He calls attention then to the reality of who they are. It's not a failure in the part of God. He says their heart is false. So it means that their heart is not tuned in to the Lord. The Lord sees their wickedness, their false heart. And so again, this makes an echo or a reference back to Genesis 6 verse 5 where the Lord's frustrated with the human race and he says, look at these people, their intentions are continually evil, continually false, continually contrary, and so he sends the flood. 
So what's going on here is, again, he's saying, my people have been just like the people in the pre-flood era. They're like Adam, challenging my word. They're like Adam, not submitting to me. They're like the, the people before the flood who just want to rebel. Their hearts are false. They're not tuned in to me. And they're going to bear their guilt. So the Lord now vows to break down their altars, right? So right here, as he breaks down the altars and destroys the pillars, it's important to understand this. Baal, Asherah cannot protect themselves from the true God of heaven. So what God is doing here is he's saying, I will show them I'm the true God. I will show them that, that their gods that they're following cannot protect or preserve. Going on, notice what else he indicts Israel for. Oh, we have no king. What can a king really do for us anyway? What a tragedy. When you read the history and the context of this, you have assassinations. Sons assassinating their fathers, Pekah, assassinating uh, Pekahiah, I may have that backwards from memory. But nevertheless, that assassination going on. That the people of Israel have become like the Roman Empire. You know, where you read of the different assassinations of king after king after king to seize power. And so on the one hand, the Lord's saying, yeah, you're right. Because what, what have you done? A, you've rejected the Lord as we recounted that with Saul. You said, ah, we want a king like the other nations. Lord said, they're, they're rejecting me, not you, right? That, that's the fundamental problem. Now when they say we have no king, the Lord's pointing out the irony. Yeah, because your kings keep assassinating one another. So there's no stability in what you're looking to in this progressive kingship. And the Lord is calling to their attention something subtle here, that while you deny having a king, who's the one who breaks down the altars of the false god? The true king, the true god the true Lord over all. But he goes on, and it becomes more and more painful. It says they utter mere words, right? This is a warning of, of hypocrisy where we can say that we really love the Lord or we can say that we're really tuned into Christ, but we're not really tuned into Christ, right? This is the play actor. That, that's what hypocrisy means, and that's what the Lord is bringing out here. You utter words, but you don't really understand the words you're uttering and the substance behind them. So they make empty oaths. This is like in, in, in Ecclesiastes, the, the vapor, the breath, right? The vanity of vanities. It's, it's an oath where basically probably the best way to bring this uh, into our society, we could say he's a fast-talking salesman, right? So what that means is he's saying a lot of words. He, he gets you sold on something. And before you know it, you're signing paperwork and you don't even know why you're signing the paperwork because the guy was so good at talking, you didn't even want the item. But somehow, the way he talked, you, you fell for it. Another way of bringing this home would be children on the playground when they play around and, and they make this promise or they make this covenant and they say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because I had my fingers crossed behind my back, right? And, and so that's what the Lord is saying about the people. You claim to make these oaths. You claim to make these statements about following me. But they're vacuous. They're, they're empty. They're, there's no substance there. Uh, the judgment, he says, springs up like poisonous weeds. Well, I mean, any farmer can tell you what this is like or any landowner, right? You don't want those poisonous weeds because they take over and are very difficult to get rid of. 
And he's saying, that's what Israel has become. I put them into a land to make the land fertile, prosperous, to to be the picture of heaven. And what does it become? An unkept anti-Garden of Eden, instead of being consumed in beauty, is consumed in toxicity and weeds. So the Lord's obviously not happy with his people. Going on, still not done. This is again the calf of Beth Avon, where you think of this as a parallel to Beit El, which simply Beit means house in the Hebrew. Avon is iniquity, sin. So when you have house of sin, this was a place that was house of God, Bethel. And so we get this, remember from Amos, we, we covered this, uh, where the Lord makes us this play. And the point of that is that a place that was supposed to be house of God has become a house of sin. They remember when we talked about this, kingdoms divided. Uh, you have uh, Jeroboam, Jettison's orthodoxy, you know, goes away, uh, doesn't follow Jerusalem. He's one who sets up the golden calf so the people don't go down to Rehoboam and, and get uh, seduced by the kingdom of Judah. That he wants to keep his citizens with him. And so he's saying, here you are as an idolatrous people having this golden calf that, that you love and that you worship engage openly in idolatry, not to mention the false altars, not to mention the, the pillars and the Asherah, the fertility cult you've been celebrating. Now here you are again. You're, you're, you're the ones who mourn over the calf, right? So they're, they're leaving the land, looking back at the calf, and you think of, of Lot and his wife leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, mourning over the sinful place, that they have to leave rather than mourning over the sin. And as they leave, you have the priests who are supposed to be protecting the holiness of God and the sanctity of God are mourning because they're leaving their idolatrous worship. The Lord's saying, how much evidence do I really need to lay out to you people? How I've been long-suffering. So now he points out that this calf that they cherished is going to be brought away. Ephraim's going to be brought to shame. It will be carried off. Now, there's a funny pun here. So if you ever doubt the Lord has a sense of humor, a little bit of a bite to his humor, it's right here in Hosea 10, verse 6. Because this carrying off the golden calf is recalling for us a significant event in the beginning of Israel's history when they're in the land. And when you think about this event, you think about what has happened uh, with the Ark of the Covenant being carried off. That with the Ark of the Covenant being carried off in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it seems to be an echo back to this with the language in this verse. You have the Philistines who conquer Israel, take, take away the Ark of the Covenant. Israel mourns. Israel doesn't know what to do. And you you have Israel helpless. The Philistines say, we've captured their God, right? So you take the ark, you steal the God of Israel. They're powerless and unable to do anything. Well, the Lord in that story, when you think back, it's very important because the Lord takes a Philistine God and makes a God fall down prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant, showing that even the false gods will bow to the true God, uh, that they're powerless, they can't do anything. And what is more, the Ark of the Covenant is placed on an ox cart and it guides its way perfectly back to the people of Israel, right? 
And so the point is, God goes and finds his people. Now, God's not confined to the Ark of the Covenant. It's symbolic of God's presence in the midst of his people. But the symbolism is profound because God goes back to his people and he finds them. The joke that's going on here is the Lord saying, here's your golden calf. Carried off, you're precious, you lament it. Is it going to come home? Can it find its way? Right? So the Lord's taunting Israel. Your calf is going to be carried off. It's going to be captured. Where's Baal? Where's Asherah? Are, are they able to go back to their place? Are they going to set themselves up again? Are they able to do this? Well, of course not. And so the Lord then goes on and says, Listen, your king's going to perish. He's not going to last. The high place that you cherish is not going to endure. And the reality is, when the judgment comes, it's going to be so brutal that what do you have? You have the language and the calling out to the mountains. Cover us, fall on us. In other words, coming into the presence of the glorious God without anything hiding is a terrifying thing if you're not in Christ. That's what you have with Adam and Eve, don't you? Garden of Eden. We'll put this God in our place. We'll determine what's right and wrong. God simply calls out, shows up. Doesn't even come out in an intimidating way in a text. And what do they do? Oh, we got to hide from God. We got to put on covering, right? That's the point of this. So we're calling Israel is going to be in that situation again, exposed, vulnerable, before the Lord, helpless, and not able to stand. And so this is a very tragic reminder. Israel has no king, as by Israel's profession. Israel fails to see who their king is. Let us never lose sight as we hear this. Our king is gone. We're called to serve him. He is our redeemer. And so we go on and we think about this because in verses 9 through 15, there's a reminder of the king's yoke. As we go on, verse 9 we have again that recollection, that tragic event in Judges 20. It's not a happy moment in Israel's history. A whole tribe is wiped out. Sinfulness on par with Sodom and Gomorrah with the Lord's people. And as the Lord recalls us, he's basically saying, I haven't forgotten what's happened. I remember that history in Judges 20. That's a tragic day. And he's calling to Israel's attention that fundamentally, Israel hasn't turned from that. I mean, I mean think about that statement. They, anyway, you, you can read the story. It is brutal and it is terrible. And what the Lord's saying is you've never turned from that. You've never repented. That's who you are. So he says, here we go, verse 10. I'm going to send a nation to discipline you. Don't be shocked. Don't, don't be alarmed. And he wants Israel to know that he's the one who's sending the nation. They are gathered against them, and they're going to be bound up. Now, this language of double iniquity, we don't really know what this means. It could be calling to our attention what has happened in, in, in Gabeah, in Je, uh, Judges 20. It could be recalling that, and then what's going on. In other words, there's a precedent, and there's continual proof you haven't repented. It could just be in the Hebrew language where you can have, where you have one number and then a number, another number 
Uh, so, for instance, you have, I believe it's in Amos, where for three transgressions and for four, or it's in, yeah, I believe it's Amos, three transgressions and for four, three transgressions and for four, that here, this double iniquity may just be amping up the reality. That what you have done is just so wicked, so immoral. Um, whatever the case, we're not sure if the Lord's referring back to a precedent and then further confirming that precedent or if he's just driving home the reality of their specific sin. The reality is, it doesn't matter. The point is that Israel is immoral and the Lord is upset. Now, as the Lord goes on, he speaks in verse 11, which is a pretty important verse, that he's the one who spares the neck, he's the one who cares for them, and as the Lord cares for them, the Lord is the one who provided for them. Uh, so as the Lord is going to discipline, we have then Ephraim being that trained calf. Now a trained calf that loves to thresh is, is a wonderful presentation here. Uh, this presentation of this uh, trained calf is the one that would go around the threshing floor and would be free to do so. Uh, as the, the one is free to do so, the, the one would go and, and break up the grain, separate it from, from what it's supposed to be separated from, and it would uh, make it so it is whole, so it's easy to do when needs to be done. And so it's easy to separate the grain and to separate um, the grain and to get the substance of, of the kernel and what you need. So if it's a truly trained calf, it would do this freely, and it loved to do it, and the Lord spared its fair neck. So the implication is, um, if this is done well, you don't yoke it. You just let the, the calf do what it does. But the Lord is calling to attention what has happened when you go 11 and 13. Because it is now this animal that doesn't enjoy uh, this freedom. It's an animal that hasn't done what it's supposed to do. Instead of being fruitful for the land, it's actually doing the opposite. Plowing iniquity, reaping injustice eating the fruit of lies, uh, trusting in its own way as he applies this to Israel. So now we, we back up a little bit and we think about, okay, what, what's going on? What does the Lord want? When he says, I spared her neck, well, this is a reminder that uh, the Lord is not going to bind them, verse 10, right? He's not placing that yoke upon them. He's going to spare the neck and he's not going to break the neck. So the language here is a language that is also subtle uh, because it, it refers back to what we have in verse 1 where the Lord is going to break down the, or the altars that, the, that they built. Verse 2, the Lord's going to break them down. Calls attention to the altars, he will break them down. Now as we go into this plowing of iniquity and we have this language of how the Lord spares the neck and he doesn't break the neck and he spares them, it's the opposite. And this is important because the language here when he speaks of breaking down the altars, it's a language that goes back to Exodus 13 with the donkey. When a donkey is born, the firstborn donkey, if there's no lamb that's offered in redemption, uh, that donkey is to have its neck broken. Uh, the firstborn is to be consecrated unto the Lord unless there is another that's redeemed in his place. So right here, the Lord's saying he's going to spare the neck of his people. So his firstborn son, Israel, he's not going to destroy is, is what's going on here. However, the Lord is still aware of what Israel is doing. They are like the stubborn heifer we've heard about in chapter 4. 
Uh, they're ones that have been set free. The Lord's given them a beautiful land. They used to love to work the land. And what have they done? They've only done things that are immoral. They have sowed iniquity. They have sowed injustice. They have done everything they are not supposed to do. But what were they supposed to do in verse 12 between 11 and 13? Sow for your self-righteousness, right? They're supposed to reap the steadfast love, break up the hardness, that they are those who are to truly seek out the Lord, that they are to desire the Lord. And as they seek out the Lord, they're going to experience the benefits of being in the Lord. But they don't seek the Lord in verse 12. So verse 11 and 13 11 was the ideal, 13 is what they have become. What should they have done? Verse 12, seek out the Lord. Going on then in terms of this warning, that as they have done this, they've just continued to move in this tragedy as verse 14 builds in verse 13. The tumult of war, unrest, their fortresses are going to be destroyed. So we're moving from what has happened in terms of the altar but now even the buildings that they trust. And in terms of this particular war, we don't know what war is fully in view, but Israel would know the precedent. There's a bunch of theories, and we don't really have time to get into all the theories. But whatever the case, the Lord is saying, you've seen the horror of warfare. You've seen the tragedy of it. You've seen what happens. That's coming against you. And the Lord's saying, don't turn to me and say, this is my fault or I did this. The Lord's using another nation to bring it about. Now, verse 15, he's saying that this will be done. So now we move from Beth Avon, remember, uh, house of iniquity. He calls attention, verse 15, O you Bethel, house of God. So he's playing back to this reality. What was supposed to be the house that brings glory to God is a place that's bringing iniquity to themselves. And so they're going to be cut off. Cut off in terms of covenantal language. I'm sure we're, sure, we're aware of this. It means that when one uh, fails to fully consecrate themselves unto the Lord, they are cut off, right? You think of circumcision. The one who is not circumcised shall be cut off. And that's the implication here. Israel, we have no king. We sow iniquity. We pursue false gods. We do not love the true God. The Lord's saying, guess what? You're cut off from the land. So again, you, you look at this, and this is one of those things where it's another one of those texts you go through and say, this is pretty brutal, especially when you read about the warfare. That's, that's just pretty brutal. There, there's no other way to say it. It's not something I hope to ever see in my day when I live. I, I don't ever want to see that. That's terrible. Whatever the case, the Lord's pointing out, this is the horror of sin. And we say, well then, what's the hope in this? I mean, if, if God's people cross the line, then what's the hope? It seems like we just go home, wait for a judgment, and we're just all going to fail, so go on. What are you going to do about it? Live your life, and that's it. But there are subtleties. And we have to catch the subtleties. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about these subtleties because otherwise we, we can get to a place where we get so discouraged we don't even want to serve our God. First of all, think about the vine. 
Christ uses the vine. Now, now there's a warning in John 15 with the vine, no, no doubt, right? The one that doesn't bear fruit will be cut off, okay? So, so there's a warning. But what's the hope, right? We, we can look at the warning and get terrified, but what's the hope? The hope is that this vine that you would think is normally a, a Jewish vine, right? These are the Israelites, the direct genealogical heirs of Abraham. But the Gentiles are grafted into the choice vine. Right? We, we, we have to cling to that promise in John 15. When, when, when Christ speaks of, of the Father being the vine dresser, there's the assurance that we will be grafted into the vine. We will become part of the choice vine. So the language of vine, when you think of Genesis 49 and, and this glorious kingdom, where are we going? We need to keep our eyes on the reality that our Lord is King and Redeemer. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who grafts us into the choice vine so we have life. Let us live in the power of that life. That's the point of John 15. Give yourself over to the Spirit. Galatians 5 that we read for our law. But we think also about the reality of the crying out, right? Where you have the calling out of the mountains falling upon us. Let the hills cover us, this saying going on, right? In verse 8 of chapter 10. We have two references of this in Scripture, don't we? Of this very verse being cited. We think of Luke 23, verse 7, 27 through 31, excuse me, and Revelation 6, verse 12 through 17. Now, why is that significant? Well, like we saw last week, uh, we saw the significance of Christ as he goes to Jerusalem and he reminds the daughters of Jerusalem that, that there's a blessing, that they've never had children, that they don't see the tragedy of war. But here you have a twofold understanding of what's going on here. So in Luke 22, it's Christ again going to, or predicting the cross and Jerusalem being cut off. So it's what we've said with national Israel. There's a typology there of showing not only an entrance into the land, an overpowering of a foreign authority in Egypt, a wilderness wandering, an arrival, right? Because they, they do end up in the land. But Israel also reminds us we're never going to bring in our own utopia, right? So when we're going through First Peter, Peter's reminding us we're on a wilderness sojourn. We're not in a place of glory. Uh, we are those who are going to experience the pain of this life but we're moving to the consummate land. So that's one citation going on here, saying Israel as a national people, as a nation's going to be cut off. It served its purpose in redemptive history. But the covenant of grace continues. Because then we go on in Revelation 6, verse 12 through 17, and that's a reminder of the final judgment when Christ comes again. This is that, that promise when we assemble before the new Joshua, Right? The new Yahweh saves as Joshua brought Israel into the promised land, so Christ brings us into the eternal consummate glory like we read in our call to worship, Psalm 48, thinking about surveying the Lord's holy city. That's where we're going. But then we also think of the exhortation of Christ. And the subtlety is so important. Because when the Lord makes reference to breaking a neck, right? It's the same language as we said, use in redemption, the donkey, the firstborn, right? We, we mentioned that. He does that to the altars, 
to the false gods. So the implication is he's going to break the neck of the false gods, is what he's saying in breaking down the altars. We, we have to see the force of this. The false gods will be exposed for what they are. Golden calf can't bring itself home. The altars will not build themselves. They will just become weeds. They will not become anything of substance. But the Lord doesn't break the neck of his people. So when you think about the language in, in Hebrews 12, Yes, the Lord disciplines us. Not saying it's always nice. Not saying we always enjoy it. In fact, many times we don't. I dare say we never do. But the reality is, as we go through it, what is the Lord doing? Teaching, instructing, molding, shaping, right? And so that's the promise here. He doesn't break the yoke of Ephraim or the neck of Ephraim. He rips the gods away from Ephraim. He says you're, you're like a, a broken calf, but he spares the neck. He doesn't place his yoke upon them in the same way he will with the altars and the false gods. Now, as they're carried off to war, and certainly they are yoked by the foreign powers, when Christ comes to us and says, take my yoke upon you, what is Christ saying? He's saying exactly what Israel should have done as we call to our attention in verse 12. Seek the Lord. Christ says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Same force. As you seek the Lord, as the assurance, you have nothing to worry about. You're not going to be like those as victims of war saying to the mountains, fall on us, or to the hills, cover us. Because the other thing we know with Adam and Eve, as they cover themselves in fig leaves, what does the Lord do? He goes into the garden, he slaughters an animal, and he takes that clothing away from them, not to shame them, but to clothe them with a greater skin, with a greater blood, with a greater shedding. It's the Lord who does this. So this reality of Ephraim being the trained calf who's going to be carried off by a foreigner's yoke, right? The Lord's going to put them to yoke, they're going to be carried off. That's discipline. When Christ says, take my yoke upon you, what is he saying? Embrace me, the substance of the gospel. And again, it's one of those mysteries or tensions or paradoxes we say in Reformed faith. As we read from Matthew 11 in our assurance of pardon. Here you have the assurance. The Father opens our eyes. The Father reveals this to us and that the Spirit regenerates us and gives us new life. Yet Christ gives a call, doesn't he? Take my yoke upon you. A real call. Why is it? Because contrary to the legalism of the Pharisees of a burdensome yoke, where we're always trying to, to please this God that is impossible to please. It's like a, the picture of the Pharisees would be that dog chasing its tail, never arriving at the goal, always tired, always feeling like it's working, but never catching its ideal or, or the goal. The yoke of Christ is taking on the leadership of Christ, consciously walking in Christ. And what does Christ promise? It's light. His burden is easy. In other words, Christ doesn't come here to oppress and to break down. Not in the sense of the foreign nations. When he breaks us down, it's so he chips away at the hardness, the stubbornness, the things within us that, that need to die. And he brings to life the new creation. Coming under his yoke is simply 
compelling ourselves or, or forcing ourselves and desiring that we are given over to the Spirit, that the Lord chips away at the hardness and brings to life what is good. So when we ask that question, how can putting on a king's yoke be glorious? How can it be freeing? When it's the yoke of Christ, it's freeing because it's the redemptive blessing of being set apart in our Redeemer. And the power of the Spirit, as we desire the yoke of Christ, it gives us the assurance that by the grace of God, His Spirit is present within us, raising us to new life. And we need to see ourselves as moving from the domain of this age to the domain of heaven itself. And putting on the yoke of Christ is not Christ trying to break us or harm us or destroy us or shame us. It is Christ giving us a taste of the glorious heavenly banquet. So we are not the people who stand there at the coming of Christ saying, fall on us to the mountains, cover us to the hills. But we are the people who stand before Christ and say, take us to your heavenly city. Let us survey the glorious citadels. Let us dwell and dine in your presence for eternity. May your purpose come to its end. And may we enjoy the great glory that you have set before us. Let us not be a people then who, like Israel, who say, we have no king. And what can a king do for us? But let us be a people who understand our king is in heaven. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. He has revealed himself to us. He has redeemed us in his son. The neck of Ephraim that should be broken is spared and only puts on a yoke. But the neck of his son is not spared. And he is broken. And he is sentenced to death in hell so we can have life. That's the king we serve. The one who's been broken by the yoke of slavery was a perfect son of God who's been raised to life. Let us walk in him. Let us see the beauty of what we have in him. As the people who deserve to be placed upon the altar are those who will be seated at the king's table at the feast of the Lamb who sojourn through this age with the assurance we will arrive in glory because our Lord is our King and our shield and defender. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is URC e-l-g-r-a-d-e.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.